Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. If you think about it, the standard formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded section that gets made into an H&E stained slide hasn't changed much in a very long time. And this begs the question, is there a better way to do this? Dr. Sharla White has studied cancer immunology and now is the director of R&D at Clearlight Biotechnologies. Today, we're going to talk about her career, the Clarity System, and how it's used in 3D imaging of tissues and 3D IHC. All right, here's Dr. Sharla White. I want to go all the way back uh, to start with you when you were entering college. Uh, because, and then we're going to kind of go through your story because I, I think it's really interesting. At, at that time, like what kind of, what types of careers were you thinking about? What, what types of things were interesting to you? And then you eventually decided on chemical engineering. So I'm curious how you kind of came to that decision. That's, that's a really good question. I will say I have always loved math and science. Uh, my earliest from my earliest memory is my dad. So both of my parents were in the military. Okay. My dad got out earlier and worked as a civilian for the government. And at one point he was doing drafting. And I remember thinking, this is so cool. Just, you know, the drawing, the architecture. So for me, he's always pushed. I have two other sisters, but it's, he encouraged that love of math, of science. We would have workbooks in the summer that I just, when it came to math, loved it. Science, the questions, the how does this work? How do we put stuff together? Building things has always been one of the things that I've enjoyed the most, you know, putting puzzles together. And so he helped nourish that and feed that aspect. And so that went on throughout school. So by the time I got to high school, I was really into if they offered it as a science, I was taking it. You know, can I take anatomy and physiology? Fantastic. Biology, mm-hmm. chemistry, physics. So when I went to college, I originally went in thinking, I want to go to med school, but I want to get an engineering degree because with engineering, especially chemical engineering, I didn't have to choose between math and science. I could get the best of both worlds. And you have to take all of these other classes. And then, oh, med school, I can still do biology. So that was my original trajectory. I'm going to go. I can still do math and science, which I love. And then I'll go to med school. Then I got to college and I decided <laughs> that I didn't need to make my type A tendencies worse. <laughs> and that seemed to be what <laughs> pre-med was lending itself towards. So I was like, I don't need to do med school, but I still love engineering. And so I, I got to stay on that path, you know, ooh, it's still problem solving with all of these other different dynamics. And now we're talking thermodynamics and all of these other aspects that made me feel like I was getting the best of both worlds. I actually considered getting a minor <laughs> in mathematics for a little bit. But the funny thing about college, you start thinking about minors. So you look at all the requirements and then you look at your schedule and it's just like, no, I'm okay. I think yeah. I'm going to stick with just chemical engineering. It'll be fine. <laughs> I even <laughs> thought about a class six minor for a while too, but I didn't have time to take Latin seven days a week. I just said oh. I didn't want to take Latin seven days a week. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I can understand that. <laughs> now, now you mentioned your dad earlier. I mean, did you ever think about going into like uh, being, becoming an architect or getting into drafting and that kind of stuff? No. I don't know what it was about that, but I liked the 
thought of it, but it didn't have that same draw. There's like a certain artistic component to it that I don't know that I felt that draw to it. But the hows and the whys and how do you get to that point where this is the end result, that's what really drew me in. And that's where, you know, for science, it's, ooh, it's, this is the underlying parts. You start with this, you put these things together, it equals this result. Mm-hmm. And that is, it, I'm more about like, let's work out the question. And I want to see what the end result is, but I'm more concerned with how the question of working out to get to the end point. Okay. Yeah. Like here's the question. And then you kind of solve, you, you solve the problem. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Which, and I think that kind of goes through your one. entire career, I think. <laughs> As, Actually, as, yeah, as, <laughs> it, as it's we'll, kind of, we'll yeah, it, it's funny how that works out, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know that it was intentional, but I, you know, I got my undergrad degree in chemical engineering. And at that time with a chemical engineering degree, what was really hot was either going into oil. Um, there were a couple of select things that were geared towards, and I just wasn't feeling the love of going that route like I'll apply to some of these things but I don't know that this is what I really want to do and so I was like I think the easiest way to kind of get to where you want to go is sometimes you just have to go back to school again right but and so I took a year off to really consciously think about what do I want to do what's next Mm -hmm. so I was researching programs where I felt like I would I'm going to say make a difference but it's so cliche but something that doesn't make me feel like I'm adding to the negative aspects, you know, something that I think I could believe in. And so I'm researching all these different programs I came across, medicinal chemistry and pharmacognosy. And the root and basis of pharmacognosy is there is this traditional medicine aspect with this rich historical history and cultural beliefs behind certain um, treatments and medications that stem from the use of plant products. And part of what pharmacognosy is, is identifying those active constituents in the plant products and then identifying them so that uh, you can then say, this is what you need. And it treats, it has these effects. So, you know, willow bark, you, we get aspirin from willow bark. And so I like that idea. So I researched all these programs and there were there are more now, but when I was applying, there were very few schools in the U.S. that actually had a pharmacognosy program. So I applied to those and UIC was like the top program for the U.S. A lot of the founding people for the field were teaching there or were professor emeritus is there. So got in the UIC and I went there and was working in, uh, what we, I was doing women's health. They have they had a big NIH botanical grant and I was working on menopausal treatments for women's health. And I was like, oh, okay, this will benefit me and this is super cool. And mm-hmm. maybe I'll go and like do field studies and a lot of different ideas about what would happen in the program, you know, before I've actually started the program. But I just was really intrigued. So I ended up focusing on like black cohosh and the work that goes into identifying these active constituents. <laughs> It's astounding and amazing. So needless to say, I spent five years on that. And the ironic part about that is I would take trips to go home or, you know, to visit people. You sit on a plane and then, you know, hey, so what are you doing? And I'm just like, oh, I'm a grad student. And I would hear a lot about women's menopausal (laughs) symptoms, (laughs) particularly their high flushes. It was really. From from people on the plane? 
They're all from strangers. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Super awkward. Yeah. <laughs> Informative. And so you're like, well, you know, this is kind of what I've seen in some of my research. And they're like, do they sell anything over the counter? And you get into these very interesting conversations where I guess you start learning how to frame what you do and how this can then help people. So you're like, well, you know, they do sell some of these products. You want to look for these certain active constituents that might be present in there. And at the same time, you're like, I hope like this doesn't replace a doctor's advice. You should definitely talk to your doctor. This is just research I'm doing. Uh, but it made for some very entertaining moments while I was in grad school. I will say that. <laughs> yeah, I like, bet. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, so I think uh, if I'm, if I'm, getting the, the idea of what pharmacognosy is, is because the chemicals come from plants, it, it mm -hmm. feels like in theory they would be safer or maybe not, you know, how you get like drugs that in, that react with each other or interact or things like that. I've, is that, is that part of the, the theory behind it? Yeah. So you've got two different aspects. You have the, you have the ones that are naturally occurring in medicine, right? Or in plants. And okay. we're just identifying, hey, this is where you can find it. This is how much where we start to see this reaction versus chemicals that are you know, being made in the lab. And maybe they're being modified or tweaked so that they're more reactive. But at this particular time, this is when every time you turn on TV, it was a pharmaceutical commercial too. And it, it just was everywhere. And I didn't, there's not, I don't have anything against that. I just wasn't, when they would run down that quick list and they're talking really fast about all the side effects, that's yeah. always mm -hmm. a bit of a concern. And I think a lot of people find comfort when you say, hey, this is, you know, something that's got tradition behind it. People have been using this for centuries to treat amnesia or, you know, to get some more rest or they were having hot flashes or to, as an antidepressant, you know, when you add in that century of stuff where people have already been taking it and it doesn't have so much policy and chemistry tied up in it. Hey, you know, they drink this tea. You feel better about drinking a tea sometimes than you do about taking a pill. And I think that's a psychological aspect for some people, but there's comfort in that. And I like that aspect of it. It does feel, it feels like a hug <laughs> from yeah. somebody. You just feel like it might be safer because of its origins. Okay, that makes sense. Not always true, but it might be. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. Okay. Now, I, I'm not trying to belittle the field, but when you talk about medicinal plants, you know, there's one that everybody kind of thinks of, I think. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, did that ever come up like in your conversations on planes, like you were talking about earlier? Did did people confuse what you were doing with with something like that? Did you have to like, sort of defend yourself? I will say that actually did it, but it also might be that I was in the Midwest too. I think it's one of those where it's always good for a quick joke, right? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Usually that's thrown at you, but I'm a good one for being like, yeah, look, there are some papers that have been published on that more so now these days, but that's not my field. So I just kind of focus on black collage and women's menopausal symptoms. You say menopausal symptoms, women will flock to you and most of you will be like, oh, that sounds great. So I'm going to go this way, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but okay. it definitely, I think now I, I can see how that could be more the case now. They've got two different types, right? And so uh -huh. then you've got the makeup and the percentage, like even in that regard, 
I think that's where sometimes it can be off-putting. You're like, yeah, let's talk about the science of it and the percentage and how much did you have in there? And mm -hmm. they all have roles. And no, that's that's not the active constituent, though. That's just there. That has another side effect. And people people like, I was making a joke. You're like, oh, sorry. I thought we were being serious here. <laughs> <laughs> that's happened more than once, I would say. Okay. You're taking it too literal. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now then, uh, all right. How does, how does this then transfer into vascular immunology and um, molecular biology? Cause that's where you went then for your postdoctoral right. work. Yeah. So in grad school, I, my advisor also had another project. She was also focusing on breast cancer studies, but when it was time to graduate, I went to Stanford. I did a postdoc in the Cardiovascular Institute, and then our lab was at the VA in Palo Alto. But my mentor for grad school was actually looking at ginseng, and in particular, uh, ginsenicide RB1, and how it could help with breast stenosis. So you go in, you have a stent placed, or you have a blockage removed, and breast stenosis is when basically the blockage reforms regardless of the stent, or maybe it forms in another location. And so how can you treat that and keep it from reoccurring? So that was the initial draw. And then as a part of what we had going on, it's what's happening and what's occurring when this is happening. So now you've got this increase of an immune response that's occurring. So now we're looking at the specific endothelial cells are your first part of it, because that's going to make up your lining, your inner lining. And then we're looking at smooth muscle cells because then those are going to start to proliferate. And that also is part of the blockage. But then what are the monocytes and the macrophages? How are they responding? Are they aggravating the situation? And then you start getting into other like, oh, do you have diabetes? So you have high sugar, low sugar. And next thing you know, we're really focusing on the vascular immunology aspect of what's going on, mm -hmm. which is great. It's interesting. I did that for four and a half years. And then um, I took a short break <laughs> and then I went to Genentech for cancer immunology. And so now I've circled back to the immunology that I was using in my postdoc. And what kind of made me stand out in that regard is, so I was actually working for a cardiovascular surgeon. So when we were working with human samples, which are so precious <laughs> when it comes to doing research, often when you're doing the uh, benchtop research, you're either doing cell culture work, maybe you're um, working in the preclinical with mice, but it's rare that you actually have that access to human samples to work on, you know, because they're always part of a clinical trial and you're hoping that you can get some. So working for a surgeon and having human samples and having that experience was kind of a, a standout. A lot of the immunologists that I've worked with since then have primarily worked with, you know, mice. And the okay. immune response and what you're looking at is different than with the human response. And it was kind of interesting because then I've got a wealth of different applications that I've used. You know, I've, I've done Western blot. I've done flow. I've done um, ELISA's. You're doing immunohistochemistry, a wide range of different applications. I think in my grad school, I was also doing, we did a radio label tag <laughs> for one of our markers and trying to assess this. But I was thinking this was kind of typical, but pharmacognosy is a multidisciplinary degree. So we pull in from all of these different other fields and it all ties together. So there's math spec that happens that you're trained on. You're doing pharmacology, you're doing basic biology. You've got the chemistry that's happening when we're trying to 
isolate the active fractions and then they're trying to identify what the, uh, identify the structure of the chemical that's in the fraction. So I take all of these applications and I go to Genentech and <laughs> most people are working with, they've done particular applications a lot, but not this, this wide ranging field of it. Um, and then on top of that, you know, I've spent a fair amount of my academic career troubleshooting and problem solving, which was great. It feeds into the whole premise for chemical engineering. You know, you mm-hmm. work in a team, you discuss the problem, you want to find the pressure points, you want to figure out how you can make it better, optimize the flow. But now we're applying it to a biological standpoint. And now I'm at Genentech and it's high level turnaround, <laughs> high throughput. And it just was, I thought it was ironic that I came full circle back to cancer because I was definitely in a lab that was doing cancer work that just wasn't the area of my project. In the same way, it was ironic that I do so much biology work when technically I came in with like chemical engineering, <laughs> you start making hard. It's interesting how it all ties back in together, even though they seem like they're separate. And that's been the focus and kind of the the main theme of, I guess, what I've done as I've gone forward is that all of these different skill sets that I picked up along the way, they build upon them, they feed in, they provide insight for the next one and trying to troubleshoot. And maybe if we take this approach and you always learn things along the way, which is why I kind of make these other pivots, like what more can I learn? What's new? I constantly that hunger for like, there must be something more. I want to okay, I think I've got this one down, but what's next? What will be the next stage after this? You know, how do we take this to the next level? And that's where I've gone. <laughs> and uh-huh. it all builds upon each other and it's become extremely useful by the time I get to where I'm at now, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think that's an important point too. Like you, you know, you take the skills that you learn and the and the concepts that you learn and then you apply them to the next thing. And sometimes, like, like I have to imagine having work in, in pharma cognacy, like, going into Genentech, that must have been pretty unique uh, to have that kind of background. I, I think it was. I I didn't realize how unique it was until, you know, you start to talk to other people and these are amazing people, right? They have wonderful backgrounds as well. And then sometimes you, you wonder like, okay, so what do I have to bring in? Especially, you know, if they've been with the company for a while and here you are, you're new, what do I have to bring in? You want to prove yourself. But I think because of my diverse background, I'm like, oh no, I've worked with human cells. Yeah, no, that's, no, 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 that's not going to be the same as when we isolated from the mice. I've learned that. (laughs) And at the same time, I learned more about what are the markers that are specifically unique for looking at the immune system in mice versus looking at humans. But I'm, what's new for me is not new for them. And so we're able to like work together and build upon that knowledge and help each other out. You know, when I went to Genentech, I had done flow, but I was doing three or four colors. At Genentech, we're doing 12 (laughs) at that time. And I think, you know, we're slowly working our way up to 20 and 30, depending on your project. But there was always this opportunity to say, hey, I know this and you know that. Can we work together? That'd be great. (laughs) I would love for Mm -hmm. you to show me more about this and we can discuss, okay, so you're going to do this and we know that this is going to happen. So you have to be careful of that. And it just was a very, it was very refreshing (laughs) to not only be exposed because at least the project I was on was definitely, it was a multidisciplinary as well, but in everybody has their role in the team. 
And then you have these joint meetings where you discuss that. And sometimes you, you're contributing towards, you know, a paper and something that's slightly off, but it still had value, <laughs> that type of thing. And I, I just thought that was refreshing. And it was nice to know that I had so much to bring, even though on paper, it looked very, it's one of those where on paper, it may not necessarily be exactly what you want, but it's exactly what you need to okay. get to the goal. And so that's what I, I realized I was bringing in is all of these other unique experiences all came together to be very beneficial to the project at hand. That makes a lot of sense. All right. Now then how did this work at Genentech in, in cancer immunotherapy? How did that lead you then to join Clearlight Biotechnologies then? And I believe that was 2016. Uh, so I've been at Genentech for about a year and a half or so. I wanted to do a little bit more. I think as a scientist, we all want to be on the cutting edge of, of research, that project that's just like, oh, what's new? You're, you're helping discover it. Mm-hmm. And so I was just looking for other opportunities to grow um, and, and to do more. I wanted to have a little more say and involvement and what was going on. And so this opportunity for learning about clarity came up. I read that 2015 paper, the 2014 paper, like everybody else and was like, Ooh, these images, mm-hmm. I could, I could totally see how this could also be great for cancer. You know, a lot of what we were doing is tumor digestion and flow. So being able to see where these are, you know, when you start to see this variability in numbers or maybe it's not consistency or maybe the numbers that you're reading for like your treatment are consistent. Maybe they're not. How do you explain when they're not? And I just was thoroughly intrigued. So read the papers, did an interview and was like, this seems cool. Like, (laughs) wow, (laughs) this is I'm excited. I'm really excited about this and what it could bring. So I yeah. took that leap of faith to join a startup. Um, very, I think hadn't even, they had been around not even for a year yet when I joined, but it seemed like it was a risk worth taking. <laughs> so uh-huh. five years later, <laughs> uh, I, I'm still excited every day. I don't know what we're going to get from day to day. We work with, so, all right. So a lot of what we did was, partially translating what's been established for the brain and taking it to tissues beyond that. And our immediate focus was how do we apply this to tumors and the immune response? And if someone is applying treatment, what does that look like? So a lot of work on that and how do we go beyond the brain? And it was really challenging and it pushes your limits because what do you do when you have to figure out what the answer is when nobody can tell you what it is. And it's really pushing your, that scientific process to the brink. <laughs> Cause mm-hmm. now you have to try to I- isolate the different variables and what small change made it better, made it worse. How was that impactful? And so that still remained exciting. It was a big, huge puzzle, right? And I'm all for puzzles. Science is one of those where, I often say I must be a glutton for punishment, right? Any scientist that's out there doing it gets more no's than yeses. But when you get that yes, when you figure it out, it is the best moment out there. It feels like the greatest high. And you ride that wave (laughs) for maybe a month or two. (laughs) It'll get you through several more no's (laughs) as you're 
working it out. But I, I love those moments when they come. And that's just it. It's one of those things that help, like help makes me tick. Like I really, oh, if I just change it a little bit and tweak it and great, now it works for tumors. Let's take this to the next problem. And people continue. What we do know is people were publishing papers. Clarity looks great. They see the value of it. But what we were finding is a lot of people had to make their own specific changes to make it work for what they wanted to do. And mm-hmm. I get it. But that's a lot of time and effort and energy. And I say that as somebody who put in a fair amount of time and effort and energy at a company that was focusing on this. So I can only imagine what was occurring in these other academic labs where they're publishing and, and it shouldn't be that hard. You know, for the, for technologies like this, I think we all work to try to make it as simple and straightforward as possible so that we can really focus on what matters, which is now let's talk about the treatments and the questions that are out there and we continue to push this brink. So then we started doing lab services. And now it's, we get, we get samples. We've tried a multitude of different things. We've done mandibles. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Uh, we are working on really making it great for the eye. Skin was one of those where you really start to, okay, this is what it means when we talk about applying clarity to these different tissues. And it's not just about your tissue looking clear and and being able to know that and say, hey, we've done this, that, and the other. And sometimes we get samples and we don't know anything about it. So we're, we apply our technique. These are our results. Sometimes it's, we aren't sure what's going on. You know, sometimes we're told, sometimes we're not. But there's magic and mystery in that <laughs> that makes it really exciting. And there's nothing better than when it all comes together. And you're just like, wow, okay. We are definitely on the right track. I am so excited about whatever it is that they're doing at this company. I want like we got we have to keep our eye out for what they're doing because this is exciting. We've only done a small part, but I am amazed. <laughs> I can't wait to see what might be next. Yeah, and that's what yeah. this job brings to me and and I think it's made it worthwhile, you know. Here I am 5 years later still excited about what I do. <laughs> and not many people can say that. Uh, you know, I'm not going to lie. I think we hear people talk about how, you know, you want to get a job that doesn't feel like work. I'm not going to, science feels like work. It, it never does it not feel like work, but mm-hmm. to, to maintain that excitement. And I think that's the hard part is that there are certain things that you do, you do the experiment a certain way. We have our SOPs. You have your, this is how you get from point A to point B. But in that path from point A to point B, man, you, it can be a straight path. You can meander along the way. And I'm happy to meander to get more information. And it's rare <laughs> that, you know, not that we're not trying to get from point A to point B, but what we learn along the way just continues to be exciting. And I think that that's what we all hope for in the job is that at least most of the time we're still excited to do what we do. And that has remained. I've been very excited about the work that I do. That is not the hard part about what I do. <laughs> Can we go through the clarity process? Because what I kind of want to, I guess, highlight here is how is it different? Because most of the people listening are going to be familiar with the formal and fixed paraffin embedded, you know, the usual kind of histology process. So can we go through what clarity is and then sort of how it's different from that? Oh, sure. All right. So clarity in, on, in a nutshell is you have your tissue. It hasn't been sliced. Um, 
you're going to embed it with a hydrogel. And these are um, acrylic uh, hydrogel monomers that are going to then embed into the tissue and they're going to okay. form cross links with each other. How, how big of a piece of tissue are we talking about? So it was originally developed to work in a whole mouse brain. So we've okay. done we've done a rat brain. We've done spinal cords. Uh, you can apply it to bigger tissues, but we typically don't go larger than that. And that's just because the back end of this for imaging is with immunofluorescence. And so most of the mi microscopes that are out there have size limitations mm -hmm. okay. for being able to keep this intact. But, okay. okay, so you have a whole mouse brain or a whole rat brain. You don't need to section it. And the whole point of Clarity is that you embed it with this hydrogel monomer solution. It's going to form crosslinks. We're going to polymerize those in place when you apply heat. You put it in a water bath. And when it forms those crosslinks, it's going to bind to the proteins. It's going to uh, bind to the DNA. It's going to bind to RNA. But it's not going to bind to the light scattering lipids. So when we look at each other, you know, your skin isn't see-through. And part of that is because we are made of complex, very complex uh, components. So we have extracellular matrix, we've got stroma, we've got RNA, DNA, we've got water. All of these have different refractive index in, indices, which basically means that light can't go straight through it. It bends and eventually it's, it's distorted enough that it can't penetrate all the way through. So with clarity, we create this mesh, lock it in place, and then we remove the light scattering lipids. And by doing that, we create this hybrid tissue hydrogel sample. And then we're going to stain. If you want to see, you can see straight through it, or you can do amino staining, or maybe you have endogenous markers. So things that you've already injected into your sample. But by removing those light scattering lipids and then putting that into a refractive index. So it's got some, some value that's been assigned to it. And that's important because then when you have your objective for the, the microscope that you're going to use, so more than likely it's going to be a confocal or a light sheet microscope that's going to be set for that, that's now going to allow the wavelengths to penetrate through the tissue all the way. So now you can see deeper into the tissue. This typically isn't an issue until you're greater than 100 microns. So most people that are just looking at cells, it's rarely an issue. But if you want to look at cell pellets, eventually that will start to be distorted by the light unless you normalize it across the entire field. So we're locking things in place with clarity. Then we do an immersive and the refractive index. Now we can actually see what's going on in a sample without having to slice it up, possibly cut through cells. You can leave it as is and really look at whatever may be of interest for you. So maybe you want to see vascularization that's running through a bone. Maybe you want to see the presynaptic, postsynaptic, or axon and neuronal projections in a brain. Maybe you actually want to see in a tumor where the actual immune response is in reference to the tumor. And so that's what is exciting about what we do. So then the real life application of this is you've applied a treatment to your tumor. And let's say you've been doing the tumor digestion and flow and you can't figure out why the immune response numbers are all over the place. Well, we look at this and what we can see is, hey, it looks like from a straight count, all of the number of T cells are exactly the same. But when you, from a quantitative standpoint, no difference. It's not 
not statistically different. But when you then couple that with clarity, so now we've locked it in place and now we have the spatial orientation where it is, you can see that all the numbers look the same, but for treatment one, your samples were just sitting at the edge of the tumor. It didn't actually penetrate into the tumor. They're just accumulating on the outside, having no effect. But then for tumor two, your T cells are actually getting into the center of the tumor. They're actively creating a response and that makes a world of difference. So, hey, we have 200 T cells in both of these samples, but one is actually inside the tumor fighting the cancerous cells and giving you the targeted reaction that you want. And the other one is just there, but they're not able to be as active in the process and, and towards healing. Then the other part of that is, hey, maybe your treatment is great, but it might be too great. It's destroying everything in sight <laughs> as opposed to just the cancer cells. And that's something else that you want to know too. So mm-hmm. we, that's, and that's just looking at it from a cancer perspective. You know, people come up with drugs. They want to know if the drugs are actually going to where they want them to go. Sometimes they're doing treatments and they don't know where it's going. And Clarity allows us to image the sample and say, hey, it's actually all congregating in this one particular location, or there are clusters here, but you know, there's no specific high concentration throughout. And that could be valuable, valuable for you if you think that it's supposed to be in one particular spot or not. Mm-hmm. So okay. then you've got that compared to FFPE, right? Right. FFPE, we're looking at two to 20 micron sections. I think the thickest you can do on a microtome is 50 microns. Yeah. And that's fine. The average cell size is about 10, seven to 10 microns. So if you think about if you're cutting it like at less than two to five, then you're actually cutting through the cells. And you don't want to do that. That's not going to give you an idea of what's going on. But this is a very labor intensive process. You know, you do all that, you get your sample, you embed it in paraffin, then you have to do all these different sections. Then You've got all these sections, but you don't have time to go through every single one of them. So you pick a few throughout the sample and you're kind of doing your sample survey. And you're hoping that the ones that you skipped don't have the relevant information that you need. And then you do your your assessment on those. Well, in Clarity, you don't have to skip. It's all in, we're capturing everything in between. And so that's the trade-off. You get a lot more information. It's less labor-intensive. And now, you know, you get a, a better picture, more insight on what's going on. That's that early advantage that we, we kind of push and try to help people to understand that clarity can bring to their research. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Sharla White. We'll be right back. LabVine is designed to integrate into the daily routine of any laboratory stakeholder and support you and your team holistically. Here are some of the features of LabVine. You can complete a skills assessment to identify your gaps and needs and be directed to resources to build those much needed competencies. You can head over to VineStream and listen to podcasts and webinars, including this podcast. If you have problems and need mentorship in your lab but lack the in-house expertise, you can head over to the ConfLab and connect with an expert that has the solution for you. And when you have a few extra minutes, check out Vine News to stay informed on the latest international trends in lab medicine. You can follow the link in the show notes to head over to LabVine and check out these features and more. Now back to Dr. Sharla White on the People of Pathology podcast. About how long does the clarity process take? So we say on average, it's four to six weeks. And a lot of that is You've got clearing, you've got staining, you've got imaging, and then if there's analysis on the backside, 
the easiest ones are you've already got endogenous markers because there's nothing additive to do with that. And then you can just clear and do it. There are, and we've been working on some electrophoretic ourselves, but when you start passing a current in, it can have certain effects on the tissue. So every tissue is unique. And that's what we've come to really hone in on is that, you know, it's not a one size fits all for every single sample that's out there. And when it comes to tumors, you know, that's a whole other ball game as well. And so we've really worked to identify these individual differences and become experts <laughs> in applying clarity to different tissues to give you that insightful, that insightful information. You mentioned that you started applying the, this technology to tumors. Why was it that you focused on those? Was that just because, I mean, I mean, it would have the biggest impact would have the biggest um, benefit. Is, is that, was that kind of the draw there? I think so. I, so the other part of it is we have made a lot of assumptions about what's going on in tumors, but what we've learned along the way too, is now they have these escape mechanisms, right? These check. So we started doing checkpoint inhibitors and mm, it's yeah. just very apparent. Like they are, actively able to respond to a situation and then start to deploy, you know, self-survival methods themselves and what's causing that to occur. And that's where I think it became very imperative to get a better idea of what was going on exactly in the tumors and not necessarily in real time, right? Cause we fixed them, but in this frozen moment, what is going on in this tumor so that we could gain a better understanding as to what's occurring because Every time another checkpoint inhibitor is identified, we find another route, you know, or we discover something new. So you've got now where there are cancer-associated fibroblasts, you know, we've got macrophages that all of a sudden are helping out the tumor as opposed to proactively trying to destroy them. You know, they're switching based off of their environment and all of these things just continue to evolve. So I think it became imperative that we started to get a better idea of actually seeing within the tumor what's occurring and then what we can do to try to better address these needs and then advance the research further instead of it's how do you cut off all the escape routes <laughs> ideally instead of going one at a time we can be a little more proactive in that and i think that's where it became imperative that we start to apply these 3d technologies to tumors now what about 3d immunohistochemistry because from from what i read uh, it, it seems like you were very instrumental in developing that technology. Can you tell me about that? Oh, yeah. Um, so <laughs> we determined it had to happen. <laughs> Originally, you want to come in, anybody's, anytime you buy an antibody, they have their applications, right? So they'll say, this is great for Western blot or immunoprecipitation mm -hmm. uh, and IHC, and you get your range in your testing. But when you start working with these thicker tissues, what we're getting is a lot of variability. We don't always know what the expression level is in them. We kind of guess. Sometimes they're flying in blind. And what we were noticing is that if you don't really optimize and create a specific set of reagents that allow you to get into these tissues, you're not going to be able to get that answer fully. So we actively were working on how do we improve this? And, and that's where that 3D IHC aspect became born. So we had to create reagents that made sure that we were creating a way for the antibodies to fully penetrate the sample. And then 
In addition to that, we need to make sure that we're using the right concentration. If you use too little, then you end up with, oh, it's right there on the edges. It doesn't fully penetrate. You do too much. And all of a sudden, you all of your antibodies are caught around the edge because they're blocking each other. But you got to find that right amount that allows you to capture the all of the markers throughout the tissue. You're able to fully penetrate in there. They're not blocking each other. And it's kind of the difference between a sandwich with just a regular slice of bread, a sandwich with the sourdough, that nice thick slice on there, or you've actually got it that's just right. You don't notice it. The entire sandwich is balanced throughout. But then what we also found from there is in addition to coming up with the right mix for doing 3D IHC is now there's also a very particular way to image these samples and what that means. And so you've got standard technology that does these tile scans. So with digital pathology, you scan your whole slide. That's great. High quality image. You can zoom in. But you're taking... You're taking the, everything's at the same plane, and then you're setting your exposure based off of that. When you apply this to 3D, what you're getting is you have to set it based off of the brightest signal throughout the entire sample at that specific level. And then when you go to another depth, there might be another varying expression too. So we've really worked to refine that process. And it's, you know, we've had questions of, hey, this still looks like it's a duct, but I'm not seeing the signal. And so you're like, I understand that. But if you go right over here to this other part, now you have a brand new duct that is really high in your pansy K expression. And if we, if you want to be able to get a general idea of what's going on, we don't set it to, we don't reduce the, the immunofluorescence to just that brightest signal we've learned along the way there. We make a compromise. So you can still see what's going on in the tissue without completely blowing out one side of it. And there's this balancing act that has to occur between the staining and the actual expression that's occurring because we have pockets is what we know. But the upside is that because we've damaged these entire samples, you can now go in and you can crop it down to the area that you're interested in. And now we can go ahead and adjust the display that'll allow you to see, no, you still have it here. It's just not the brightest, uh, it'll be like the sharpest pencil in the box at this particular point. You have another star in the other area because <laughs> you actually have different pockets in that varying expression. And that's insightful to so many researchers too, where it's just like, oh, okay, this makes so much sense. You know, what do you do with all this wealth of data and parsing that out and still being able to take advantage of that? And so that's another aspect of, that we tie into where it's not just the same part of it, but then it's also the imaging of it because it's all its own unique art form to some degree where we try to make this all come together to make sense for you. I see. And this, you're using this technology to 3D IHC, using it with tumors and it's like multiplex staining. I mean, how many, how many different stains can you do at once? Our go-to right now is three biomarkers and a nuclear counter stain. And then if you aren't interested in a nuclear counter stain, you could do four. And that's really because we're living in the land of spectra, right? You don't have to worry about too much overlap for that. We do have a light sheet <laughs> where we have some more laser lines and we're making the most of the far ends of the spectrum now too. And we're working on getting up to what would be a total of six uh, markers in your immunoplex as well. But, okay. you know, and then I'll say this, the upside to clarity um, is that we can then go in 
and we we de-stain the tissue, and then we can go back and re-stain the same tissue with a different set of markers as well. So you can do multiple rounds that way. Oh, I see. On on the same yeah. on the same tissue. That's on the same tissue. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh. What we have learned though is that there are caveats, right? So organoids, you can do it, but there's going to be a limit because they're they're fra- they're more fragile. Mm, um, so okay. it's still handling of a sort when you're doing this. Whereas if you have a whole tissue, they're more robust. <laughs> We've done right. bigger sections too. So it's really very cool to then have those when you want to look at different markers. But then it's, we get into that, what's going to be a high expression marker, what's going to be low. Typically when you're doing these multiplex ones, you want to make sure that you're going after your low expression markers first, just in case there is any variability. Typically the robust signals stick around for multiple rounds of staining. Now, you mentioned digital pathology a, a little bit ago, and I, w- I kind of want to talk about that because it seems like what you're doing with ClearLight and, and the Clarity system, it, that would be applicable to digital and, and computational pathology. So, yes. all right. So, so what, are your, what are your thoughts on digital pathology, particularly like wh- what do you think the future of digital pathology will be? I, I think the, the future of digital pathology is 3D. And what we're doing, um, we're definitely building towards that. There's been a hesitancy to go digital. And I agree at a certain point, you definitely need the human aspect of it to discern um, what's still a signal and what's not. But we know that orientation matters and not just in the X, Y, but in all three dimensions. And so... The, the next thought is some would think, okay, we're going to stack the slices on top of each other. But for people that have done that, what you know is that there's always this, these aberrations that can occur from shearing with, cause you're still cutting a blade through them, right? Mm-hmm. And so that reconstruction can be very time consuming as well. It's going to have some errors because of what happens when you start cutting through the tissue and what that inflicts. And so by keeping your tissue intact, and then already having that in place, but then applying this, this actual computational value to an intact tissue where you remove these other variables is where we want to go, where we start to remove those factors, get a better assessment for what is occurring. That's what we're working towards. That's where we know that it's going to be the key. The slides are helpful. Um, sometimes it's the best you can do. Some, you know, if you're doing smears again, 3D is not necessarily going to be for you. You don't necessarily need it. But for these larger tissues and for cancers, and sometimes these, if you want to look at the eye, you know, often what happens with that is you can't really cut the eye. It's very, you know, it's got so much fluid. It's mostly water. Um, they can end up just, it ends up getting the retina cut so you can lay it flat and see it. And we are working to remove that impact for it. If you want to look at what's going on in the bone, if you start cutting it, you never quite know where, what you're looking for. And that's imperative to know, hey, you can see your better starting point. You can get your values from there and then you can really hone in and focus on what's going on in those neighboring areas. Digital pathology, it, it I think what's preventing it from being really widely used is it adds a step because you're still sectioning the tissue. You're still making the slide. And then you add the step of scanning the slide. And yep. what you're doing with clear light is you're taking away the sectioning. You're taking away the slide completely. Yeah. You're, you're eliminating you, steps. Yes, you're absolutely right. We're eliminating steps. 
and you still get the data. Mm-hmm. And and if you want to do multiple areas, now you don't even have to worry about the reconstruction part of that. You know, the upside to being able to acquire these thick Z stacks is that if you want to trim out areas because they're not relevant, we can do that. You can you can do your 3D crop on your image, focus on the relevant area without ha- adding on more time. You know, you don't have to say, oh, I pulled this slide. It seems like this is where we're starting to go, but my next slide is in a non-relevant area. So instead of doing that, now I've got to go back and do more work. We're not doing that. You've already captured the area of interest, and now we can hone in on it. If you imaged it, and so we had one where we imaged a sample. We did a nice high whole scan, 10x magnification. And then you, here's what your sample looks like. Okay, go in and I want you to go at a higher magnification in this area, this area, this area, and this area. Then, then we can go back and do that. There's no, the only additional work is just imaging it again, you know? And now because we're focusing in on a smaller area, you know, that's less that we need to make concessions on because you've already told us this is exactly where you want to be with a higher resolution. And so we've done that and it's, proved to be very insightful for the people that we work with. It's insightful for us when we're capturing it. And I think that that's the key part is this ability to go back in and either reinterrogate the sample or maybe, or go back in and reinterrogate your actual data set. Being able to say, hey, here's my data set. And now I want to see more in this area as opposed to that area because I have a new question. You're not doing more work. You don't have to come up with a new sample. You just need to look at the data that you've already been provided in a different way. Okay. And and that's a game changer, I think, especially from a time standpoint. Right, right. Now, as as far as the time standpoint, though, I mean, the, the, I guess the only downside really is that you're talking several weeks to get, you know, an image with clarity where, you know, which is a lot longer than the, you know, one or two days we're used to with regular H&E stain. Right. Is there work being done or some sort of uh, plan, it, it, something about, you know, reducing that that time to make it more? Oh, absolutely. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. So when when the first paper was published, I think there were notes about clearing for months. And obviously, who wants to clear for months? That's just not realistic. But um, we've been making several optimizations on the reagents that we're using in our protocols to continue to truncate what's going on in the time points that are happening. So now, you know, I'm saying four to six weeks, but that's going through the entire process. And then, you know, what is the question? Sometimes it, t- it takes a little bit more time when you're not sure what you're after, but you're not sure what you're after because it's not your research. Does that make sense? So, sure. yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes we're like, okay, what are we looking for? We don't know. Sometimes when we have these conversations, they don't know what they're looking for. So it's, let's see where we are. You know, let's see what sticks <laughs> and we go from there. But we're still, we're constantly um, improving our reagents that we're using to kind of truncate this, shorten the time frames, turn it around. Like, what can we do? identifying antibodies that are compatible with clarity because, you know, not all antibodies are created equal. When we find those that are directly conjugated, those are great. (laughs) I think everybody loves those, even if you're doing Western blood and and they work, but there's not always a win-win for those. What we found is that, you know, 
things that are great for flow cytometry, it's a different mechanism and application. So it doesn't always translate to the next one. So we are trying to increase our libraries and our knowledge in that so that we can have these things in place when our customers want to know. But what we found is for every single market that we look at, somebody always has one that we've never looked at before. <laughs> it's a guarantee. Hey, I like two of these, but there's this third one <laughs> that I also want to do. And and so often that's where we find ourselves is trying to apply this to what's relevant for you and your research. So a lot of what we do is our, we don't try to make people fit into our box. We want to hear about yours and we make a custom box for you. So everything has its limitations and constraints, but we're, we're very open about that. And then this is what you want to do. So this is what we can do together. And you don't have to settle for what we've already done. We're more than happy to work with you. You have a brand new antibody that's custom. That's great. <laughs> Did you verify that it works? Fantastic. We can test and see if it works for clarity. We're more than happy to do that for you. And this is what your antibody looks like. And this is what it does. And I think that that's been, I think that some of our customers that have used that have found that to be extremely beneficial too. They find sure. that maybe they want it to be more specific. So mm-hmm. we, we like that. <laughs> yeah. It gets yeah. us excited. Yeah, I, I yeah, I can imagine. This is this whole just thinking about this whole technology. This is exciting, you, you know. And looking through, and I'm going to link the website in the show notes for this episode. But in you know, looking at some of the pictures and some of the videos that are on there, there it's there's a very kind of artistic quality to a lot of that stuff. And I know, right. Yeah, and this is something I've been kind of exploring with the last few interviews I've done. A lot of people I've noticed have, especially in kind of science and medicine and pathology, have kind of a artistic or a creative aspect to them or kind of a side hobby or something like that. Do you have a a hobby like that? Is there do you, do you think you have that aspect to your personality? Oh, that's absolutely true. When I was younger, it was poetry. Then I dabbled in abstract uh, with pastels for a while. And I think right now, yeah, I well, so I know that I'm not an artist. <laughs> and so, but abstract, you kind of get that freedom to express without the box of what does this look like? It's so interpretive and subjective. And I think that as a scientist, we, kind of, we are constantly measuring ourselves against, you know, how is this? Is this good enough? What does this look like? That I found that abstract gave me a little bit more freedom to not be so judgmental about myself because <laughs> I know I'm not an artist, <laughs> at least not in the traditional sense of this is a dog. This is a cat. I can do something, but you're not going to be impressed by it. I guarantee you. Um, so I did that for a while too. And I always wanted to do kind of oil painting and, and that kind of painting. And, but without that's, those are so expensive and <laughs> I didn't want to be too wasteful with it. So now I do paint, paint my number ones so I at least know I'm going to end up with a pretty picture and I get to do the try the painting part of it out and I, I found that to be relaxing um, and I enjoy it so I do that um, I also I've been working on like learning Japanese again and I I, <laughs> I there is so I when I was younger I used to do long stitch uh, in grad school for stress relief, I did knitting and crochet. I took that up. <laughs> that was exciting for a while. Um, I never did perfect my hat, but I made some great blankets and scarves <laughs> that <Okay>. were 
<laughs> I, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm all for all of those. I think I still have so many kind of notes. Now it's just how much free time do I have to kind of do it? And so the paint by number sure. just makes me feel really proud of myself to be able to get into the painting. <laughs> so you're, you were a bit of a, uh, I think a dabbler is the, is the word for that. Yeah. Will I get yeah. into it for a while? And then I want to say, so for knitting, I really enjoyed knitting. I enjoyed that a little bit more. No, no, no I enjoyed crocheting more. I felt like I was a little more efficient with that one, but I was one to make. I, so I made a lot of like the, the leg ones that you, I don't know if they have a name, but I wanted to be able to make the big blankets that you could like put on the bed. And mm, okay. those are, they take time and then trucking them around. It gets heavy after a while. <laughs> so I needed something that traveled a little bit easier. <laughs> I think so. The paint by numbers was a nice simple way for me to kind of keep it compressed without trekking around. But don't get me wrong, I still have all my crochet hooks. I've got plenty of yarn. <laughs> me and Michaels were friends for a while. Oh, sure. Um, it's always exciting to do those kind of things. That's interesting. That's interesting. Okay. Okay. Uh, th- the last thing I wanted to ask you about, I know you you speak often about women in STEM. Mm-hmm. That's kind of one of your, your topics of choice. So uh, tell me about this. What What kind of things do you like to point out about this area and, and, and why is it important for, for all of us, even those of us that aren't women? When I was growing up, family full of women, uh, my dad never was, Hey, you can't do this. You just need to do that. Always encouraged that we could do anything we put our minds to. And my mom was the same way. So she is a air force veteran. So, you know, we grew up living around the world on military bases, but to be able to kind of see my mom do this, she's come in after doing combat training, wearing her BDUs and just the epitome of anything is possible. And so growing up, it just never really felt like a thing. I've gone to great schools and haven't had that issue. But then I noticed once I got to college, <laughs> especially with engineering, that there was definitely a little bit of an imbalance in having women versus men in the field. Um, you saw it in the teachers that you had. And you try to figure out where your place is in that. And then I went to grad school and I had a wonderful mentor, Judy Bolton. She's great. Um, she was an amazing person. <laughs> uh, somebody, one of our other former students that's faculty at USC, I think they said she's a sharpshooter and she was. But that's when that, that mentorship and what it means started to really cement itself. You know, she was the head of our department and she was on all of these major grants and she was on top of making sure that if you were in her lab, you were up to snuff on being able to understand what was going on, being able to defend it and going forward. And that was Tough love would be probably the best way to encapsulate my graduate experience. But I would say I've never felt more well-prepared for everything else that came in my career than after I left from that training. And so then I went to Stanford. I had another female mentor. And again, none of this was intentional. This is just kind of how it worked out. And she was nicer. It wasn't quite the same, but... Again, you look around and maybe you're the only woman in the lab <laughs> and maybe you feel the 
disregard for all of the training that you've also done and what you can bring to the table. And it just is negated. So you, you know, Stanford's really good about providing these opportunities. So there was a lunch group that they had for post-op women at Stanford and STEM where you can meet. And so I'm, now I'm interacting with women that are in different departments across the campus. And we have certain common experiences that help you realize that, okay, it's not personal. This just seems to be what the case is. And then we've learned about different opportunities that can help you get through or that they found as a way to kind of like help them make it through. Because science is a tough field in general, and it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, but it, it's tough. You have to learn how to withstand all of the negatives <laughs> for when you get that positive experiment that actually you've proven something because we can't publish negative data and we want to be able to say, you know, demonstrate that we've been doing stuff. So you learn about that. You you go to meetings, you have a webinar about imposter syndrome. That gives you some insight and it also kind of helps reaffirm you. And throughout these experiences, it it makes you feel more comfortable in your own skin, but it also starts to change you. And if it can change me and make me feel better, then let me make sure I tell somebody else about it. So, you know, mentoring, whether it's me tutoring, or maybe if it's me teaching, or if it's just people that work with me that may encounter certain situations, sometimes it's just life lessons. I try to make sure that that's, hey, maybe you've seen this, or this could be a a situation that you encounter, and this is how I've navigated it. I've worked with enough people where you observe them going through things. You have these conversations and you learn a little bit more about each other that extends beyond the science. And it creates this this sense of camaraderie so that even if we move on to different jobs and different places, this is still a touch point. If they know of something, hey, here's an opportunity. I thought of you. It becomes a community in that regard. and I think that, you know, the science community can be very big or very small, and that support is key. And so then I went on to Genentech. I also had another female boss there, which once again was a great experience. I worked with, actually, I think the group I was in there was all women. It was amazing. <laughs> I was surprised to kind of see this shift. Not that there weren't men everywhere, but I went from feeling like, wow, there are so few of us to these different situations where, wow, okay, this is an entire lab group that's all women. Fantastic. And then I ended up at Clearlight, which historically, most of the scientists that have worked for them have been women. You know, uh, I came on board. We've hired more women since then. Again, not intentional, but, you know, these are just the candidates that we've had that have helped us really kind of advance things. And this shared experience, this growth, I think it's important. You know, hey, you want to talk about grad school? Let's talk about grad school. Um, we can talk about what it means to be a female in grad school about that. You know, what that life experience looks like as you move on. And I've just found that that ability to share that knowledge and to give back. Sometimes what I think is just, you know, a thoughtful observation that I just want to share. And, you know, I'm usually quick to be like, I mean, this is just what I've seen. So let's put that caveat on there. But this is what I've observed. And perhaps, you know, you might want to look into that. But then you have somebody that might come back maybe years later to say, hey, we had this conversation. And I just want you to know that it was really tough. I was going through this moment. I thought about something that you said, and it really just helped get me through. And that's where I think 
I feel the payback. You're not looking for it, but it kind of finds you. And it continues to reassure me that mentorship and that guidance and just making yourself accessible and available to some degree is so impactful on people, even in the smallest kind of ways. So if I, if I find something that I feel is moving me and that is making me feel like a better person, a better scientist, a better able to survive a very tough discipline, working in a very tough discipline, then I think it's worth sharing. And that's always been my goal. So I, I'm like a people science person. I don't, I'm not going out to like meet as many people as possible, but I'm definitely open to having conversations. It, I, I think that it's, it's pay. I found it come back to me in ways that make me think, okay, all right, this was a good choice. I should continue to do this type thing. And so I, I make sure that I put that out there and, and so that people know that there are other touch points if necessary. That's a great point. I mean, mentorship is very important for, you know, all fields and science in particular. And, you know, I, I hear that a lot. I talk about that a lot on this podcast. So that's, that's great to hear that, that you're, you're doing that in your, it's rewarding for you in that way because you're helping other people uh, along in, in their journey as well. So that's great. Thank you. I, I definitely try my best. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So Dr. White, this has been super interesting. I, I really appreciate your time. And I, uh, it, it was fun to kind of look back on your career and what you're doing with Clearlight is just fascinating. And I'm, I'm excited to see where that's going to go in the future. So Dr. Charlotte White, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dennis. It's been a pleasure. Great big thanks to Dr. Charlotte White. Uh, next week, I'll be speaking with Dr. Natasha Savage. She's one of the authors of a paper that's titled The Medical Student's Guide to Pathology Residency, Fellowships, and Careers. Here's a short preview, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. So then what was your kind of first exposure to pathology? Yeah, so uh, of course, like you know, all medical schools, we get pathology uh, during our initial curriculum. And with that, one of the lectures that we had was on hematopathology. And at that time, that was back when we subclassified AMLs based on um, AML in zeros through M7. It was really a morphologic and immunophenotypic diagnosis. And I really enjoyed the way that the lecturer described it, how organized it was. I um, just enjoyed how the morphologic findings um, really helped to predict what type of AML it was and the potential prognosis and therapeutic implications, et cetera. And I, I loved that you integrated these other things such as cytogenetics at the time, which isn't wasn't as much used as it is today, flow cytometry, chemical analysis, et cetera. I just like utilizing all that information at hand to come to a most uh, correct diagnosis to render more targeted therapy for each particular patient. And that continues to um, increase in hematopathology and part of the reason why I, I still love it to this day. I really like these interviews where I get to talk about new technologies that are out there. And even though it seems like the Clarity technology is a few years at least from widespread clinical use, it is interesting to think about and it's exciting to think that these technologies are in the not too distant future for us and they'll help us do a better job for our patients. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. Don't forget you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. 
thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.